Hi, friends. I'm excited to share this really interesting talk with you today with Jonathan Raymond, CEO of Refound, a leadership development firm specializing in training people managers how to give high-value feedback and have effective one-on-ones. I was informally introduced to Jonathan a few years back when I was given his book, Good Authority, as a gift. And I think I read it in one night. And to be honest, I'm not really a reader. I fell in love with his book as it follows my leadership philosophy to a T. It talks about the idea that personal and professional development are one thing, not two, and that to lead well with this philosophy, you have to be committed to accountability on both sides. And yet, as wonderful as the book was, that's not really why I invited Jonathan on our show. After all, we're talking marketing here, people. That leadership stuff was just icing on the cake. Rather, when I researched Jonathan, I was most intrigued by his background. His time leading up to his current role helped inform his ideas, and I wanted to know more. He worked at a company called Emith, where he served as both CEO and chief brand officer. And while not a marketer by trade, it was clear to me he understood what it means to be in the people business. And as marketers, we're all in the business of building people and relationships. So I wanted to hear his story. I hope you enjoy hearing it as much as I enjoyed asking about it. My friends, Jonathan Raymond. I was rereading the intro to your book, and I think your story is really interesting, how you started out of law school and sort mm. of, you know, found your way and then ended up at Emith. But like, tell us a little bit about sort of your education and how you got started and, and sort of how you found your career trajectory that you're on today. Yeah, I, w- I would say I was a, an unrepentant career bouncer for, for many years, sure. uh, kind of going back and forth. I remember telling my parents when I was in in college, I went to school in upstate New York. And I remember when I was, I was a very disgruntled kind of college junior thinking about the life ahead of me. And I just said, I will never have a nine to five job. That's just, I will never do that. And of course I had had many nine to five jobs over the sure. course of the past, you know, 25 years or whatever it is. But I think the, the salient or important part of that is while I was in undergrad, you know, like a lot of people, I was looking for answers and I was a philosophy major, you know, one of the most practical degrees out there. Sure. And I got really interested in, you know, philosophy of religion, philosophy of love, philosophy of, and spirituality. And I started uh, really opening to other ways of thinking different than the the models and the mental models and emotional models that I grew up with. Right. And so I started to slowly but surely go off the deep end into all things <laughs> Eastern philosophy and meditation Ooh, okay. and mindfulness and and then uh, yoga and countercultural psychology and somatic psychotherapy and you know wow. anything and everything. I was just like looking for answers, and I sure. was very hungry. And so okay. that was kind of the start of the journey for me. Okay, so you ha- you come out of law school, you have a pretty successful career, and then you said you bounce around. How did you end up at Emith? So I had moved up to Ashland, Oregon, which is a small town, which is famous for nothing except the uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. It's a sweet little town in Southern Oregon. Oh, and it was it was actually uh, the beginning of the last recession. I had been living in San Francisco and I was like, I got to, the prospect of looking for another job in 2009 was not appealing. Um, and so I moved up there and through, you know, a series of random events, met the the chairman of the board and the, and the owner effectively of that company and she was looking for an opportunity to really grow and to change the company, to have it modernized, to really rethink the brand and the messaging that it was putting out there. And for me, that was like music to my ears, it was an amazing opportunity to bring together 
two parts of my life. One was the my I'm very entrepreneurial by nature. I've worked in a lot of startups. I've I've been in a lot of early stage you know ventures, and that was really exciting to me to take an old brand and try to make it new again. And then the other half of that was it was about coaching. So it was okay. about growth and yeah. development. So there was an opportunity to rather than start something from scratch, which is incredibly difficult, which I've, I've done recently. At that point in my career, it was an opportunity to take something that existed, that that had an audience, that had customers, that had operations, um, it had systems in place and and try to figure out, well, how could we reinvent it? Sure. And so that was how I ended up in that, in that role. But uh, it was a really exciting journey. So for those listeners who maybe don't know what eMyth is, talk a little bit about their business model at that time. And then maybe sort of, is it the same today or have they evolved? It is essentially a family business, but it started back in the late 70s. There was a very famous book called The E-Myth Revisited, which is a great book. You know, every small business owner should read. You can pick it up for real cheap on Amazon. It was written back in the late 70s, sort of crystallized in the early 80s. And there's a real, it was a really simple but powerful idea, which was that people go into business because they know how to do a thing, not because they know how to run a business that does that right. thing. Definitely. And so the myth is that entrepreneurs know how to run businesses. The reality is entrepreneurs know how to do something. They're a good architect or a good dancer or you know, a good accountant or a lawyer or engineer or whatever. And then they go and start a business and then they realize, oh, wait a second, insert expletive. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff that I don't know how to do. Right. Help. Yes, uh, sure. So Emit came along and said, hey, we've got some lower priced solutions, some lower cost coaching, some things like that. And they had a really good run for... I don't know, 30 years, you know, 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to do was I was trying to make that philosophy more, more modern. There's some ideas in that book that are, that were stale from my perspective. There were some, some concepts and some frameworks that didn't speak to me in terms of the way I want to treat human beings, even though, uh, and the way, the way I think about culture, the way I think about leadership. So there was good frameworks there, but the vibe and the tone and the context and the humanity was missing for me. Interesting. And I tried as hard as I could to kind of push my agenda while I was there. Uh, and then ultimately, I ran into too many kind of institutional roadblocks and, and, and my way was no longer the desired way. So I left and decided to create Refound. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So there's so much to dig into there before we jump to Refound. So in that the people piece resonated with you because why? What was it about your background or you say, you know, you were uniquely qualified to focus in that vertical that sort of came to the forefront? Yeah. So for me, you know, I had spent 20 years doing personal growth, both as a participant, an active participant and kind of spiritual seeker, personal growth seeker, but also as a facilitator and a trainer. And I'd been through in various philosophies and methodologies, I, I was trained to do different things, some therapeutic, some more, you know, different, different ways of essentially helping people grow through different philosophical and psychological viewpoints. And that part of it to me was, that was where my interest really was, was on the mm -hmm. people side of it. And the, the philosophy that was, it's not wrong, but it was incomplete for me, which is say, look, you shouldn't build a business that's dependent upon any one person, especially you as the business owner, because you've created a bunch of risk in your, and that's true, right? You shouldn't. Sure. And there's a way to do that. That is humane. There's a way to do that. That actually respects the individual person and their wants and needs and fears. And that's the part of the curriculum that wasn't, didn't speak to me. Um, and I was trying to evolve. And, and so in my own experience, I had I'm a very different person than I was 
you know, when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, when I was in my 30s, I went through a deep personal transformation, including a lot of trauma uh, in different ways and, and had like abusive bosses and abusive spiritual teachers and, and different people that I interacted with. And this light bulb went off for me. And I, and I, and I said, wait a second, we've been talking about leadership and management for half a century, maybe longer in some ways, but we've never really talked about authority. Mm. We've never really talked about authority itself. Got it. And what we do just by the nature of being in a position of authority and how that changes us. We see it happen, but we put people in management and leadership positions and we don't, we, you know, the thing we should do is we say, okay, you're about to be promoted to, for a manager. We're going to send you away for a month and you're yep. going to work on your stuff. Yeah. Right? We can't do that, right? That's not realistic. That's not practical. And yet, to my to my mind, most of the problems that you see in the organization is because we don't do that. Because we don't take seriously that who you are as a human being, irrespective of the systems that you put in place, irrespective of the process, who you are, how you show up, what you what you feel is true in your heart, the words that you use, the tone, the context, that is enormously contributive, if not determinative, to how your team feels about their work, to how they use those systems, to how they build your brand, to how they talk to your customers and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So the systems is just a part of it. And it's not the most important part. It's essential, but insufficient to create a modern brand. And I think that gets to the heart of what I want to spend a good bit of time talking to you today is sort of this premise that personal and professional growth are one thing, not two. I think that really gets to the heart of your ideas. But before we do, I want to understand. So you were at Emeth, you were the CEO, and you moved to the chief brand officer. And it was in that role that you really had these aha moments about what it felt like to be an employee, not the leader, right? Mm -hmm. You talk about this idea that you started to understand the frustrations that managers can place on employees just by having an idea and asking for their help. And then also getting to this very personal place of wanting to be coached and mentored through your personal passions, not just the job you do every day. So talk about that transition, why you chose to step back from CEO and how that further informed the ideas that you were feeling. Yeah. So it was a combination. It was like a, a, a blended, like voluntary and involuntary choice, right? It was, I was, it was clear to me, the writing was on the wall that like the tension between myself and, and the, the chairman of the board was just, it was untenable, right? And we, we did not have a good working relationship. And even though, you know, the audience was paying attention and they, and I was, I had a, I had a privileged position of being able to share my ideas with a, with a broad group. It was just more and more frustrating and more and more clear to me that I'm not going to be able to do the thing that I want to do. And so that was really, for me, was like, okay, I need to, I need to not be calling myself the CEO of this company, but I can't afford to leave yet. Yeah. I need to make a plan here. And so, and again, it wasn't only my decision. You know, there was, it was clear. It was like, it was, there was tension, but I said, look, I'm going to step down. I'm going to go be the CBO. I mean, I can still add value here. And it was in that moment that I realized, and it's a, it's a subtle but critical shift. It's the only role in the business that doesn't have the experience of what it's like to work for them. Yeah. Right? Everybody else works for the CEO directly or indirectly. You have an experience of the culture. But if you're the CEO, you don't have the experience of working for yourself. You have a board right. of directors and you have other people that you typically are, are responsive to, hopefully. But uh, it's different. But um, that was the the pivot moment for me was I'm going to do everything within my control and within my authority, which was still a lot, to try to lead differently. And that's when I uh, started to do the work that I do today. 
Well, I so appreciate you sharing that story sort of from a very vulnerable space, because I think so many of us come to this point in our career where, you know, the trajectory we're on just does not align at all with what's going on inside. And so, you know, I wrote down this quote, you said it was the time for me to let go of my baby and make room for someone else. Hmm. And so I'm sure that was very transformative time. Were you passionate about branding and marketing at the time? Or did you just feel that was the best step for you to continue to help the organization? It was kind of what I was doing. I, you know, I feel like there's kind of two types of CEOs. There's the sales type of CEO, and then there's the kind of operational or technical CEO. Right. And I was definitely the former. I'm definitely okay. more on the, I like to be out there. I like to be doing things like this and, you know, speaking about ideas and sharing conversations with people and making the connections. And that's what I love to do. And so that was the, so the, the chief brand officer role was a natural fit for, for a while until it wasn't. Right. Uh, but that's why I went in that direction. Well, I couldn't agree more that you have this natural ability to put ideas into words. And I think that's why I loved your book so much. Tell us about that part of the transition. So when did the book Good Authority come into play? And how did that sort of work in tandem with um, starting up Refound? When I left Emeth and I went off on my own, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to put something out there. I had a, I had a following in terms of people who really liked the writing that I was doing and the speaking I was doing. So I felt confident that there was going to be an audience for something. And at the beginning, I said, okay, well, am I building a consultancy? Am I building a training company? Is it going to be more B2C where I do like individual like seminars and workshops? I really didn't know. And so it was in that moment that I said, you know, what's the one thing that's going to get me further along than anything else? And it's writing a book. And if anyone has the desires to write a book, don't do it. It's horrible. It's terrible. <laughs> I like, want to write worst. a book. Don't say that. I would no, love no, to write you a should book. Write one. You should write one. <laughs> it, it, there's a, uh, Seth Godin has a great blog post. It's like 27 reasons not to write a book. And he, t- read, <laughs> he reads like all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. And it's a terrible idea. And then his last one's like, okay, now go write your book. You know? Sure, sure. Because if uh, you want to, nobody can tell you no. I know yeah, that because exactly. deep in my core, there is a book and it will come out someday, but it's just yeah. not there yet. Right. Well, so, and so it really, I wrote it out of desperation and I, and it was what I will say, the reason to write a book, even though, even if you don't make any money from it ever, is it's transformative. It's personally transformative to digest your experience. And then once the book dropped, which was in late 2016, I picked really bad timing. It was like two weeks before the Trump-Clinton election. Oh, wow. um, people were not exactly paying attention. But slowly but surely, people started to pick it up. And then I started getting asked to do appearances and talks. And, you know, it's really just kind of spread word of mouth from there. That is so cool. How long did it take you to write? Front to back was about nine months. But there's a lot of, there was a lot of waiting in there. I know that sounds fast for anyone who's thought about writing a book. But I'm like, you know, my wife would tell you when I get my mind on something, I'm kind of a bulldog. So I was like, you know, <laughs> up at two in the morning, I couldn't start. I got to write this chapter about, you know, whatever. Right. Um, so love the book. I'm going to spend some time talking about it. Like I said, the key truth, and maybe you have a better way of saying this than, than I do now, is this idea that personal and professional growth are one thing, not two. And at the time that this book was introduced to me, that sort of concept of showing up as your whole self was very popular, you know, but maybe not embraced much by the organizations that I'm working with. So talk about how your background got sort of inspired you to see the merging of these two worlds. Hmm. So for me, I had bounced back and forth, you know, quite a bit. I was kind of a business development exec is a kind of the simplest way to describe it. Sometimes, sometimes in really early startups, sometimes in more established organizations, but my role was always in one form or another, how do we grow the enterprise, right? How do we mm-hmm. grow? What do we need to do in order to grow it? 
And what I was doing in my personal life was personal growth. How do I yes. grow myself? How do I become this thing called my authentic self, which sounded like pretty important, right? Like it seemed like a good thing. Like you should probably not leave your life without, without knowing that knowing your authentic self. That seemed like an important life goal to me. Uh, I'm surprised that for how that's not always the case for people, but go ahead. You know what? I, I don't want to interrupt too much, but I, I do because that's so core. A lot of people don't need that. I found that in my life, there's people who agree that you need to be on a self-discovery journey and your self-improvement can improve your organizations and the relationships around you. And then there's like this whole faction of people who don't. Do you find That's that right. too? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> okay. there, 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 there are different flavors, right? And I think that the thing that I, I guess the, the way that I hold it in my head is, you know, there, first of all, there's, there, are, there are for many people, and I don't say this glibly at all, the trauma is so severe that opening up that Pandora's box is just not something that they're going to do. And I get that. And I understand that. And so for anybody who's been through deep personal trauma, who says, look, I'm just not going to go there. It's too painful. I understand. I do think that there's a way to open that box and be productive, but I completely understand not wanting to. But then on the same token, some of the people who have experienced the most trauma are the ones that are most willing to go there. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. somehow creates this vulnerability in you. Yeah. It seems like you've had that. Yeah. And, and well, that's the thing is that like we talk about, especially these days, many organizations, not not most yet, but many organizations are talking using phrases like bring your whole self to work. You can be a whole human here, all those kinds of things. Sounds good. What does that mean? Right? Because what we are actually transacting when we say that is we want your happy self. Mm -hmm. We want your positive self. We want to hear cute, funny stories about things you did out of work. And that's okay here. That has nothing to do with your whole self or your authentic self. If you can't have conversations with people that include topics around anxiety, fear, vulnerability, shame, guilt, grieving, you're useless as a manager or as a leader. You can't, right. you have no help. Right. You're disqualified. You can't lead or manage in the modern world if you can't have those conversations. The reality is you were already being disqualified over the last couple of years. The world was already changing, but COVID-19, game's sure. up. Like right. you're done. You're toast. Like <laughs> Work in life. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Like yeah. if you can't talk about personal growth and development as a manager or a leader, like it's over for you. Absolutely. So let's get to it. But even before COVID, okay, so the first sort of section of your book talks about taking a fresh look at the company culture problem. So why should anybody even care about the importance of good authority in their organizations? What were some of the main shifts you were seeing at the time about employee engagement, about how everybody has to be part of company culture and transformation? Sort of frame it up for us of why, if I'm a business owner or a marketer, this should be mm -hmm. top of mind. There's no distinction to me between the experience of my customers and the experience internally. Any Anytime that there's a gap between how we treat our customers and how we treat our people, it's having an impact on the business already. I just don't know what it is yet. It's just delusional to think that you can treat your customers in one way and your employees in another, poorer way, right. and think that it isn't having an impact on your business in some form or another, right? And so totally. that's the, the one. The one other thing that I'll say is that if you look hard enough, you will discover additional value that you can add to your customers by talking to your employees, yes. by hearing their voice, by letting them 
share counterintuitive or 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 difficult or uncertain insights about your business, if you actually listen to those things, the business will transform. But leaders and managers don't do that. I couldn't agree more. I, I always say that my success has been built on the backs of other amazingly inspirational, creative, passionate people. And it's because of their passions that we as an organization have grown. So I think that's kind of your concept. The first step you talk about in your business refound is that you say that authority is about creating space, almost like empowering and and taking those questions and learning from them and being more curious. Is that right? Is that how you sort of gauge authority? Yeah. You know, and it's like the, the, I think we're starting to see the beginning of a backlash against kind of like helicopter or snowplow parenting, right? We're seeing the downsides, right? Of when you don't, when there's no space, between the person in authority and the person not in authority, bad things happen, right? And it's the exact same thing with our employees, right? With people who report to us, when we're, when we're watching too closely, when we're replying all on an email that we shouldn't, when we're sitting in on a meeting, just to make sure, I just want to be there to make sure when we do all those things, we are disempowering because there's no space. Doesn't matter what you say. You can say all day long, I really value you. I really want to hear your voice. I really want your opinions. If there is no space, what you say is irrelevant. It's sure. actually worse because you're saying one thing and doing another. You're better off not saying anything at all. What, what I think is so great about your model, though, is you don't stop there. You don't just give space without setting expectations, too. Correct. Right? Correct. So tell us about that. Yeah. So the first concept we talk about is with this idea of more space is more Yoda, less superhero. So right now, if you look at the people on your team, if you ask yourself a couple of questions or, or, or we can ask them for you, you will see that there are places where... There are things that you are doing that they should be doing. There are things that you are worrying about that they should be worrying about. There are things that you are owning that they should be owning. So the first step is identifying what those things are, right? There's a famous quote I put reference in the book. You can't put something down if you don't know you're holding it. Yeah. I think it was uh, Feldenkrais who said that. So that's the first step. So you have to become aware. So, oh, wait a second. That's where I'm superheroing. And as a result my expectation that they're going to take ownership of that is not a reasonable expectation because I'm in the way. Step one. So now I step back and I say, okay, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) So now step two is I have to create an agreement with this person. Hey, if I pull back, if I'm more Yoda relative to these sales meetings or, you know, checking in code or monitoring or running our fine, whatever the piece of the work that they do in the business or the organization, I'm going to work on not doing that anymore. In order for me to do that, in order for me to relax, we need a new agreement. And and that agreement should be collaborative, right? So that's step two. And then I'm sure we'll get into it. But step three is, okay, well, let's say we make that new agreement. Well, now I need you to give me feedback. Am I doing it right? If I'm doing it right, tell me. Tell, Give me an example of when I fulfilled on that agreement and the impact that it had and how happy that makes you so that I do more of it. Yeah. And if I do something that's not in alignment with that agreement, I want you to tell me, hey, we made that agreement that you were going to do this. You were going to check in with me when it came to these things, because that helps me sort of like let go of it and, and make sure that I create the space for you to own it. And that didn't happen. Talk to me about what happened there. Right. Yes. And so that, that third step of that feed. So there's a there's three step process, identifying where we're too much in the space of our employees, creating a new agreement to train, to change it, and then giving feedback against that agreement. If you do that one thing, I've seen it happen hundreds of times, you can do that one thing over and over again. You can transform your team. You can transform your organization. And by the way, you can free up a lot more time for yourself as a manager and 
And it's an enormous act of self-care for you as a manager to be able to do that. So how do you coach managers who backslide and feel like they have these inspired ideas that they want to share with their staff? Where is the line between when the staff is asking for that direction versus questioning and creating space for the group to come up with their own ideas that are maybe even better than yours? There's this thing that managers do is they, they'll say, for example, they'll say, well, you know, I micromanage sometimes, right? Sure. And the reality is, if you think that, the reality is you micromanage constantly. Sure. All the time. Whatever you think you do a little bit, you do all the time. <laughs> and from your team's perspective, you'd never stop doing it and it's driving them bonkers. <laughs> so don't, so the way to improve as a manager is not to minimize that, but to maximize it is to say, what if I micromanage? I think I micromanage some of the time. I'm going to start my learning as a coach, as a manager. I'm going to assume, let's just assume it's 10 times worse than I think it is. And I'm going to start working on it as if it's 10 times worse than than I think it is. P.S. It is. It's 10 (laughs) times worse than you think it is. So by embracing that and saying, hey, I'm going to magnify it rather than minimize it, that's how you look for those opportunities. You no, there's no loss there, right? If someone, if you get feedback from someone, say, "Hey, I see you kind of working on that, but I think you're actually great at that already." Okay, well then go find something else to work on. Right. Uh, I've never actually seen that happen, by the way, but yeah. yeah. So that's how you identify those opportunities. And then I'll just want to speak to something else you ask. It's really important. How do you know? Because in a fast-moving environment, there are moments where you, even though you're working on being less of a superhero, there are moments where you have to. So. I'll give you an example with one of our clients. They run an advanced manufacturing facility that they're trying to spin back up after a shutdown in light in, in during during COVID-19. And they're starting to like put this factory back online. And the leaders who've been through these trainings, right? It's it's the, the impulse to there's so many things that have to get done right now. The impulse, the first impulse is, oh, I gotta do it all, I gotta do it all myself, right? But they're because they've been through this training, they're like, I know that's the worst possible thing I could do right now is to think, because I'm going to burn out. So I have to be even more Yoda in this moment. I've got to delegate more in this moment. I have to be more clear in order for, and this is a matter of business continuity and culture continuity. I've got to put people in places where they can be more empowered to do more, which by the way, is also the recipe to help them stay sane and not distracted and engaged. So everybody wins. And along the way, there are going to come moments, pre-COVID, post-COVID, doesn't matter. There are going to come moments where you're going to say, you know what? I just have to do this myself right now. All All I'm asking you to do is to go to the person who in another moment, you would give it to them and say, hey, this is a thing that I would normally want to give to you, but right now we don't have time. So I'm going to do it myself, but can we meet tomorrow? Let's take 20 minutes and let's talk it through together. Absolutely. That's all you need to do. Right, right. The other word that you used when you were describing that is in a time of crisis or fast-paced move it, being clear, right? And that sort of expectation setting. I, I think, I hope I've created a culture with our staff where they say to me often, we're not understanding the words coming out of your mouth. Can you write them down, right? Yeah. And so taking that pause, that, that almost creates more space for people mm-hmm. to do what they do well when you're clear with your thoughts, right? Yes. And here's the thing. <laughs> for, here's the thing for leaders and managers that's hard to remember. It comes down to context. The reason why your people 
are experiencing that, right? And it happens over and over again. It's very frustrating for leaders. Like, I don't understand. How do they not know? What? But we already talked about it. Yes, you did already talk about it, but they weren't in the meeting where you got all the context. Or the dots that have been connecting in your head for two weeks, exactly. right? So they, didn't, they weren't there for that. So it's not about, it's not that your communication is wrong or that you didn't, you did say it, but it wasn't enough. You sure. didn't give them the context. You didn't give them the why. You didn't give them the alternate paths that didn't get chosen, the rationale and all the stuff that you got to sit with and marinate with, with your fellow managers or leaders or whatever, they weren't there for that. Right. So, so they, so they can't receive your communication in the way that you would like them to be able to, you can't be efficient. It's not, it's not possible. You have to come back and give them the context. Well, I love your years of experience with working with companies like this. And you started to give us an example or two. I would love to know maybe a story of an organization that you feel like has really embraced these concepts and is doing it really, really well. The thing that I love about this work is that with any sort of like personal growth or development or coaching or even sort of counseling in your own life, it's really easy to measure in one way. It's like, are people talking about it, right? right. Do people use the language? And so we were working with a, actually a large nonprofit. We don't have that many nonprofit clients, but we happened to be working with a large nonprofit recently. And they, you could tell that they just started using the language mm. and they started having, I wouldn't say comedy, but they started having laughter around feedback conversations and some this this thing called managing performance, right? And it was lovely just to watch how they. It's a very high paced, you know, very high stakes, a lot of money moving around, and they started to use the language. And this is an organization that had been through dozens of different L and D sort of learning methodologies. And the person came back to me, the the buyer, the the CHRO came back to me and said, "This is the first thing we've ever done where the language sticks, where people mm-hmm. are using the language." Yeah. And that's that's really rewarding. And that's what mm-hmm. I see across our clients. It doesn't always happen. Right. Sometimes you, you know, it, it does happen where you start an engagement where the CEO says, I'm really on board and I really want to do this. We we try to be, you know, good filters to say, like, hey, wait a second, this person is not on board. But sometimes it happens. And in spite of our best efforts, the CEO undermines the project or doesn't actually change. Right. We've been very fortunate over these last five years. I think because we're small, you know, we don't have a hundred clients we're working with at a time. We typically have like ten to fifteen, yeah. uh, and then we're doing a lot of individual stuff as well. That we're able to be choosy about who we work with and make sure that we are we're not doing a training program because HR said so. We're doing a training program because it's part of the cultural initiative, yes. and it's connected to the business outcomes. And so that's. That's the way we've worked and and um, the successes we've had. I love that you talk about language. Um, several of my interviewees this season have mentioned that. And I think language is the foundation of culture, right? Like we have to have a shared working understanding of what we're talking about. And that that can evolve based on who the organization is it, as long as they know the concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. definitely. And, and uh, there's a fabulous book, uh, which probably many of your listeners have read called Sapiens uh, by Yuval Hariri. And so, you know, just a very, very long book, but a beautiful book. And he talks about the power of myth and we need a story to believe in. We need a story. And that's like what separated sapiens from the other species of humans. That's why we survived and they didn't, or at least that's the theory, is that we were able to make stories that we could identify with that you know, 
wolves don't band together, you know, and call themselves a nation, right? Like right, they don't, right. they don't invent a car company and, you know, we believe in Peugeot, right? Like the example that he used in the book, right? So those myths, and that comes down to language and our ability to tell stories, true stories, right? And yeah. to tell a story as a brand, especially these days, if you want to, you know, keep the younger 30 years of the workforce, Mm-hmm. Uh, it better be a true story about the, the organization and the positive impact that's having that it's having on the world. Um, if you want to keep good people, that is so true. Storytelling. We could have a whole separate interview on that and, and the importance of that for a brand. But one more thing on Refound and, and your book that I, I want to dig into. One of the things that you say right in the intro is the deepest purpose of a business is to change the lives of people that work there. Mm-hmm. And everybody who reads that just goes, oh, "Yes, that's it." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how did? I know, I know we've talked well, about that so, extensively, but I wanted to give you a chance to speak on that. Yeah. Sometimes people throw things at me when they read that for the first time. They're like, no, I don't agree with the first purpose. Right. Is and I said, look, I didn't say it was the only purpose and I didn't say it was the primary purpose. I said it was the deepest purpose. Mm. And I chose, and I choose my words. We're talking about language. I chose my words carefully. It's the deepest purpose of a business. And what my experience was, I, I had this experience when I graduated law school and I went to work for a uh, very you know high-powered law firm in New York, and I was a peon, very junior person in this law firm. But I had this experience that was life-changing for me in an interesting way, perhaps, that I got to see people who were at the top of their industry at the top of the world. And what my experience was like, oh, they're just regular people. They're just, they, they worry about the same things. And a lot of them were jerks. That's true. They were not, some of them were not nice. Some of them were really not nice. But the things that actually moved them, if you could sit down with them and have a human conversation with them, which I tried to do, you would find a human being at the center. Sure. You'd find a good person who wants to do well, who wants to be happy, who wants to have good relationships and just doesn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And when I've talked with CEOs, all of the CEOs that I've talked with over the last five years, all the managers that I've talked with, the moments that they talk about are when someone on their team does something amazing mm-hmm. and it does something transformative in their life. Oh, you're never going to believe what happened to James. I heard, he hasn't told me yet, but I heard that X. That's the, those are the moments that light, light, light them up. There's, you hear these stories of CEO, you know, well, you know, my, this person was able to buy their first home or put their kids through college or these transformative moments in life that a company can be responsible for, right? Can drive. And that's what I meant, the deepest purpose, and that we have this opportunity. And I would venture to say, we have a responsibility now more than ever to be the people in our, in our leadership, in our management, whether you're a first-time manager or the CEO of a multinational. It is your responsibility, in my view, to be a steward for the personal growth and transformation of everyone in your company. That's going to look different. Some people, that transformation is going to be extreme. For other people, that transformation is going to be subtle, but person by person, that's your responsibility. And if it and if you had any doubt about that before, COVID just ripped the cover off that, and that's where we are now. And we have to care for each other in a new way. We have to be connected with each other in a new way. We have to have conversations and listen and figure out how to come together in a new way. And there is no conflict between doing that and the success of the business, none. Anytime you think there's a conflict between the well-being of your employees and the health and wellness and growth of your employees and the success of the business, you just haven't looked hard enough. Absolutely. You just haven't asked enough questions. Yeah. 
Say more about that because obviously your clients are talking to you and, and we are sitting in the midst of this. And I think our measuring stick as a company is just what you said. You know, whatever is right for the individual is right for the business. It is their life, right? As sort of what trends are you seeing emerge? Or, you know, we've talked a lot this season about how people are taking advantage of this time to reinvent the way they're going to work when people are coming back. So yeah. what are your thoughts? So so I'm not an expert on this topic, but I but I do will say that I'm seeing it. The I think in in recessions it's fairly clear that survivors who who have the ability to disrupt do really well on the backside. And I'm seeing Mm -hmm. that with most, not all, but most of our clients are kind of in that configuration where they're going to make it through, they're going to be fine. And they've actually seen some increase in demand. Um, They're in the types of businesses. We we happen to not do a lot of work in retail or hospitality. That's not our restaurants. It's just not our client base at the moment. And so most of our clients are in, in other fields. And the, so I'm seeing a lot of that where people are seeing the opportunity to take a breath and say, hey, actually, we we can do more now. We can add something to the product. We can reposition something that we've been wanting to do for a while and actually be really relevant right now. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of that. And, and we're doing the same thing at Refound. You know, for example, we historically have done a lot of trainings in person. We've shifted to do everything online where we're doing accountability dial video course online and our academies online, and we're we're doing a webinar next week on you know how to give feedback when you're working remotely. I didn't do that last year. I'm doing it right. now. Right? right. The word that you used is we can do more. It's so funny. About an hour ago, I think I sent that very email to my partners, and it's not about more. I think some in some ways people are having the space to emerge what they already are. They just had never thought about it that way before. Yeah. Are you seeing that as well? Yes. There's so much pain and suffering right now. There are so many people that are hurting so badly and it's tragic. And I I feel like my spiritual practice right now is reading three articles a day about people who died from COVID-19 or people who are going doctors, nurses, like that's my spiritual practice right now is reading three articles from any source about someone who's suffering, who's lost somebody from this. That keeps me, Um, that keeps me centered. So I don't, I never lose sight of that or try not to to lose sight of that. And there is a, there is a rawness to this moment that, I believe it's it's hard to talk about. Some people might might not necessarily take offense, but I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to the what. Are, what are we fighting for? Are we fighting for a world where we're buying bad products that are environmentally unsustainable from five thousand miles away? You know, flying too much, shopping too much, not having enough enough time for. Is that what we're going? Is that what is that the normal we're fighting for? No, thanks. Right. Not interested. Right. I want to fight for a new normal. That is a transformed world. And, and COVID-19, while it's horrible on so many levels, it, is, it has opened a window to the future of humanity and I would say consciousness that people have been talking about since the 60s. The window's open. Will we go through that window? I don't know, but I'm going. I don't either. And, and anyone who wants to go, come with me and I'll come with you. Like, yeah. Because we are, we're never going to get an opportunity like this again. No. Climate change is right on the back of this one. We have to change. We have to change dramatically. We have to change now. Yeah. And we got to bring everybody with us. It's not about political party. It's not about anything. We got to change now. So I don't want to fight back. I don't want to fight for anything that was from the past unless it was, unless it's part of that better future. Yeah. And we got to help people. We got to do a lot of retraining. We got a lot of reskilling for people who are working in industries that either shouldn't be around or shouldn't be around to the same degree. They're going to need a lot of help and we got to do that. Absolutely. 
I, I read an article the day this or the other day that said the same thing. Is like, don't miss the pause. There's just so much goodness in this space of integration right now, where you can be home with your family and you can work and you know just emerge differently. I'm excited about the opportunity to partner with our clients on the other side to re-strategize about who they want to be. You know, mm-hmm. what a yeah. good opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you because I don't know any of your clients, and I and I'm just getting to know you, but I can tell you with absolute certainty that you have better relationships with your clients today than you did six weeks ago. Yeah. Well, I hope that's true. We are really trying to sort of be in it with them. And I think all the great marketing companies out there are. What's next for you? What's your next branding or marketing adventure? Like, how are you reinventing yourself? We're doing a lot around how to how to lead remotely. I think that the acceleration of that trend, it's something that our clients have been asking us for, but we haven't had to really deal with because we've had enough business to focus on in-person workshops and seminars. And, and frankly, the digital learning, it's harder. Like it's it's harder to get that right when you don't have the body language and the room, you know, I'm a I believe in being in physical space with other humans. It's it's a sure. core value. So I've been, I was semi-reluctant to do that. But what I've seen is that the the demand is just enormous. And what I've experienced recently is that we can actually add a lot of value there. So so we've pivoted a lot and we're doing a lot of a lot of work around in particular because we're known as a feedback methodology. And I and people are really struggling. It's hard enough to give feedback when you're in the office together, but when you're remote and you're conducting things by video call. And I think even post-COVID, that's that trend is going to continue, right? We're going to see less of a need to be at HQ, less of a need to to rent big expensive offices. People are, I think, are going to see the value of like, even if I don't work from home all the time, I'm going to work from home some of the time. And I think that's a good thing for a lot of different reasons. But that's really where our focus is on how to give feedback remotely, how to bring that into your one-on-ones and how to create a human working relationship, even when your primary mode of communication is video. Yeah, yeah. I saw that you have and, a webinar. You know, messaging or whatever. I'll share that with my staff because I think that's so, you know, we, we're probably 70 people plus, not just in Illinois, but all throughout the country. And so those sort of practices are going to be so helpful. You made a comment that you're really starting to be known as sort of this feedback mechanism. And you talk about the accountability dial. To me, after reading your book, Jonathan, that feels so narrow compared to yes. your platform. Yes. So. Talk about the importance of just sort of honing in on that niche so that you can continue to grow from the accountability part of what you do. But your message is so much bigger than that. And how are you evolving the ReFound brand to continue to do all the rest of your amazing Yes, it is. My experience is that if you try to, you, you have to start with the symptom that people have. And everybody struggles with how to have difficult conversations. And what I've experienced is that if we can help them solve that very pressing real problem, they want more. And that's the invitation into a much larger conversation about transformation and leadership and culture. And so it's not, I'm very transparent about that. Like ReFound is total organizational transformation. That's what we're about. It's about changing the way we think, the way we feel, the way we talk about ourselves, the way we manage our emotions, psychological, it's all about all that stuff. But we go through the doorway of feedback because it's a real problem that people have and it's something really people really struggle with. If it's too broad, then it feels, especially to a CEO, it's like, oh, it's too culture. I don't know, like I don't I don't understand it. And I and I and I'm a CEO by trade. So I I I'm I tend to try to speak more to the operating leaders than than HR, even though I have a lot of HR people that I would count as close friends. 
Absolutely. I think that's such great advice. And I think that your entrepreneurial background of speaking to the symptom and growing from there is something I could probably spend a whole nother hour digging in on. Mm -hmm. But I want to be respectful of your time. So what would you leave us with? In all your years of experience, you've come to some core truths, pieces of advice, things that you want to pass on to others. What are one or two of those that you kind of would leave your words of wisdom? I would say it's the uh, amplifying the feedback you get as a manager or a leader, amplifying it so that you can grow. So, you know, I was on the phone with a guy on my team today and he was saying something about feeling like we we weren't doing enough training in some part of our like facilitator and coaching. We weren't doing enough. And he didn't say it. He He wasn't very loud about it. He was sort of quiet about it. But I could tell that it was something that was, he wanted more. He was hungry for more. He wanted to learn more. He wanted more experience. He wanted more exposure to some ideas. And I had a choice in that moment to say, to hang up the phone and say like, oh, okay, whatever. But I didn't. And I said, you know, if he's, if he's saying it like in passing, it's probably a big deal for him. And if it's a big deal for him, it's probably a big deal for others. And so I took action on the assumption that the, 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 the whisper that I heard is worth acting on. And so that's the piece that I would leave you with is that what is the whisper? Act on the whisper. Don't wait for it to become a yell. Yes. I love that. Some of the best managers that I have seen um, in action use the phrase, say more, say more, you know, and just uncovering so much about what's going on inside people. So Mm -hmm. it sounds similar to what you're saying. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I cannot wait to share this episode. If anybody has not read the book, Good Authority, I highly recommend it. I am not lying when I say I think it is the best leadership book that I have ever read. I just, I I hope that we can keep in touch and partner in the future. Yes, I'd love that. Thanks, Misty. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Hi, friends. As I noted, Jonathan didn't disappoint. I encourage you to look him up on LinkedIn and order his book, Good Authority, and visit his company website at refound.com. His latest work focuses on the accountability dial, which has been extensively covered and is a great model for any leader or marketer looking to grow or build a team. As always, I want to thank you for joining me today and ask you to download all episodes of Marketing Sweats Season 2 at marketingsweats.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me personally by visiting samantle.com or searching Misty Dykema on LinkedIn. Don't forget to give us a review. And of course, check back regularly for more real-life accounts from hardworking marketing pros. Thanks again. Talk soon. Talk soon.